سکتے ہیں جن کے اچھے خیال اور اچھے جذبات And the first three takes have just been full of laughter because this guy in the break won't stop laughing and uh, we have to act a bit serious. So relax for a bit in the break. All right. Satnam's doing deep breathing as well. So today we have <laughs> Satnam Singh with us and we know Satnam through Instagram. And basically my exposure to you has just been, you've, you've been sharing stories from the Darbara Guru Gobind Singh Ji. Um, the Anandpur Darbar in the 1600s and shedding light on the different scholars that operated during that time. And they're just stories that I had never heard before and people that I had never heard before. And um, I mean, we just, as soon as we read it, we were just like, okay, if we can get Satnam Singh on, it'd be really good for us to learn and for also everyone else to get an insight into how the Sikhs operated back then, what the Darbar looked like, what they were talking about, what their influences were, et cetera. So before I just keep going, Tell us a little bit about what you, you know, what you study in this field and all that. So uh, in the late 1600s, Guru Gobind Singh Ji, from a very early age, around the eight, <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> no, I didn't do anything this time. I didn't, no, I didn't yeah. do anything. This is, for those listening, this is just res- residual laughter that's happening from the first three takes. Yeah, continue <laughs> something. I'm just ignore it. It's all yeah. good. Yeah. No, it's difficult to ignore. <laughs> <laughs> You're doing this weird thing with your tongue. <laughs> Wait, we just gotta laugh it out then. <laughs> I was telling you Satnam, which is that <laughs> oh from the last podcast, everyone's everyone said that we're we're high. So we have to fight that stereotype. We're just having a good time. And and learning at the same time. You guys are funny, man. <laughs> okay. Wait. Should we just uh, stop it and no, redo no. it? No, 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 no. We're good. We're good. We're, we're good. Going. We're good. Yeah, we're good. You're going to have to do a lot of editing work then. No, yeah. there's no editing. This is going as is Satnam Singh. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Guru Gobind Singh becomes uh, the guru in a young, at a young age. Yeah. So um, from a very early age, the guru begins to um, basically create, um, and some historians would say redevelop the court of, of the gurus. Uh, by inviting a lot of poets uh, and a lot of scholars into Anandapur. Um, and Guru Gobind Singh is very young at this age. Uh, he's about 14 years of age. Um, so this is very significant because it's from the early age of his guruship that he brings in a lot of poets that essentially bring with them uh, literatures pertaining to, to history, to political science, to... Um, to warfare, um, spiritualism, philosophy, and so forth. Uh, and this is very significant in the sense that the Guru wants to bring this literature to the attention of the Sikhs, for the Sikhs to dive into this knowledge of the ancient past. And we're not just talking about knowledge from the Sanskrit world, we're also talking about knowledge from the Persian world and the Islamic world. So in that sense, you see that there's a big transformation taking place from the early years of Guru Gobind Singh's uh, reign as, as a guru at 14 yeah wow. that's the uh, that's the, that's the year that the guru uh, becomes essentially takes over responsibility as a as a guru of, 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 of essentially the whole Sikh community at, at that time right and when you say that Guru Gobind Singh Ji brought about this change is it safe to say that prior to Guru Gobind Singh Ji this all this kind of literature was not excluded, but not a part of the Darbar as such? 
Well, this is something that a lot of researchers and historians need to look more into because um, some historians have suggested that a lot of the gurus had court poets uh, surrounding them and their courts. So for instance, Pai Gurdas, um, who's a very respect respectable and honored uh, Sikh in our tradition, he was essentially a court poet of Guru Arjan Devji. Um, and we know from later history uh, that some of the authors mention names of, of other poets that were surrounded, uh, surrounding the gurus and, and their court coming back and forth. So that's why I said, um, this is most, it's, it's probably not a, a radical departure uh, that Guru Gobind Singh is setting about, but it's more like a redevelopment and, and probably strengthening expansion of what was already taking place at the time. And did you say he was, he was already recruiting Kavis from the age of 14, or is this something that comes along a little bit later as it's developed? It comes, it comes along the way. Uh, so the guru begins early on, and as the year progresses, and, and, and as more the guru consolidates his power, the more Kavis and scholars and poets and pandits you start seeing coming into the, um, into the guru's darbar at Anandpur. And essentially over time, and we're talking about a 25-year period here, so that's like a quarter of a century. Um, Anandpur rises to become an intellectual center um, and a cultural hub where all this scholarly uh, and artistic um, activities are taking place. So as the Guru invests more time uh, and resources um, into the Darbar, the more it expands and the greater the literary output becomes as well. You can see like in terms of, if you do a timeline, you can see that the, early, the later writings are quite voluminous compared to the early ones. So we have the Mahapada and some of the other uh, writings I will talk about. Um, they start to emerge, which obviously um, involves more technical and more specialized skills from these poets and these scholars that are translating these writings. Right. And so if you were to describe the Anandpur Darbar at its peak, you know, when I had all the poets and everything else that you just described, Describe a, a little bit, you know, like say, say a day in Anandpur. How would you describe that? So Anandpur was a very bustling city at the time. Uh, you had a lot of poets coming into the city. You had a lot of warriors. You had traders from northern India and the rest of the Mughal Empire. And at the center where you have the Takht today and Keskar Saab and so forth um, and the different forts, uh, this is where the Kavis were seated. This is where they were enthroned um, in many ways. Um, and, and a day at the court, um, with, there was a lot of activities taking place. So one of the main aspects, and one of which I find the most interesting, was the debates that they were having, philosophical debates on a lot of different practical uh, topics, philosophy, uh, for instance, religion, uh, existentialism, um, the afterlife, and so forth. And this has been recorded in later Sikh history. So the philosophical debates between the Kavis is, is one of the everyday occurrences that you'd see. Another one is where you see that uh, the, the poets are battling each other in terms of writing good poetry. So uh, like in today's world, and, and there's a lot of TV programs when we grow up, there's a lot of rap battles where like you put up two people that had to uh, battle against each other and who can create the best rap in terms of rhythm, rhyme, and, and, and obviously the, the content. And this was, this kind of thing was not very un, um, different from what you saw in Anandpur at the time. This has been recorded in history as well, that the poets were engaging um, in battles against each other in terms of who could write the most sophisticated poem. 
Um, and this was like on the spot. So you couldn't go home, rehearse it, and then come in and, and perform. You had to do it on the spot. Rhythm, rhyme, diction, allegories, uh, metaphors, all these things, you had to come up with them in, in one go, basically. And then the guru would sit there as the patron and, and um, essentially point out different poets and have them uh, battle against each other. Um, then obviously there, you can say that there was a kind of training of Sikhs. So some Sikhs would be put into the care of these different poets. And then the, the poets and scholars would train these Sikhs in, in, in mysticism or philosophy, uh, and also essentially how to write literature themselves, how to write poetry themselves. So you can see like the gist of it, we're talking about a very bustling city of intellectual activities um, in many different ways, in many different facets. Yeah. And that, I mean, that kind of reminds me because we hear stories about what, I mean, you know, where we have a musical background and you hear stories up until like the mid 1900s of the same kind of battles were happening in music. So I, I, I assume it'd be similar. Like, you know, you hear about two satad players battling it out on the spot. They have to sit and they, they play satad. And then there's, there's a story where this one satad is his tip of his finger came off. <laughs> and he kept playing, you know, and his, okay. his blood running down the string. I mean, it's gory, wow. but I don't know. It's true. But the point is the, the competition and then within the competition, this excellence thrives in competition. It forces everyone else to, to kind Amazing. of be right. So when you describe that kind of atmosphere, it's a bit of an insight because you can only have that atmosphere when everyone is at a certain level. You can't do a competition exactly. of poets if you've been writing poetry for three days, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Which, I mean, I guess leads to the question, like what was the, I mean, uh, like you said, uh, Guru, Guru Gobind Singh was actively inviting people to come to Anandpur. Was there a criteria of, uh, for who can come or who stays, uh, who, becomes, like, who becomes affluent? Uh, was there a system for that? Well, we can see that, so this is mentioned very scatteredly in the different early sources that we have. So just to name drop a few, Bansavli uh, Nama, the Suraj Parakash, um, and the Mema Parakash, um, they mentioned these different uh, stories relating to the early years of Guru Gobind Singh uh, as, a, as a guru. And you can see that the guru is essentially pointing out Sikhs and sending them into the different countries, of, into the different territories and the different provinces of the Mughal Empire with the mission to bring back any people that have knowledge, uh, any skill that they might have, invite them to back to Anandpur. Uh, and some of, the, some of the cities that we hear about um, is Kashmir, uh, that was an intellectual center, but it's also Benares, which was like the highest center of Sanskrit learning at the time. So just like to fast forward into modern times, it would be similar to having, uh, say a Gurdwara send uh, scouts into cities like Oxford, Yale, Harvard, and so forth to bring back any people, any professors there with knowledge back into Sikh uh, centers of, of, yeah, you can say Gurdwara, for instance. So, so from Anandpur, you have this mission of Sikhs going into the different uh, cities to bring back, uh, locate, uh, sorry, to locate and bring back people with knowledge to Anandpur. So that's one aspect. The other one is that other Sikhs are sent into the same cities, uh, into um, libraries and archives to find any books that might contain any knowledge that could be of benefit to, to the growing library of, of Anandpur. 
I don't think there were any criteria as such. Um, they were mentioned, the words that are used in Ispanjit, um, I think it's Vidvan and Pandit. So in that essence, it means that it's people that have a tradition behind them. It's people that have gone through these um, scholastic studies for years, we're talking about 10, 15 years maybe. It's not so saying bring back any people that have, might have read one or two books. It, it specifically uses technical words like Pandit, Vidvans, um, and so forth. Yeah. We've, I mean, I've, the common story I've heard is a lot of the poets or Kavis were trying to escape persecution. Uh, but is there uh, an, another benefit that they see of coming to another book? Um, so, yes, yeah, some of them, especially those that came from the Mughal territories, um, from, from Multan, from Lahore, and from Delhi especially, uh, the story is that they were persecuted and then they found refuge uh, with Gurgudazinji in Anandpur. Um, so, for instance, uh, Kavi Sukhadev wrote the Atayatam Prakash, for instance. In one of his books on how to write literature, um, it's like a manual for other students. How do you write good poetry? How do you write good literature? He writes that he was traveling around northern India um, and he, he went to Anandpur to study literature um, and he was captivated by the poetry that he heard there. And then he just continued onward because he was paid heavily by the guru. Um, so, so for some, it was persecution. For others, it was basically to redevelop and refine their skills as poets. Um, and for others, maybe it was just purely monetary. Uh, the guru was paying quite the guru was paying the scholars quite well. Some historians even say that the guru paid the poets more uh, money than he paid his own soldiers, because that's how much he respected them. So, I mean, there's a lot of different, we're talking about hundreds of scholars here, not just a handful. So obviously they came with different motives and, and they stayed for different reasons as well. Some of them became Sikhs, others remained Hindus and Muslims. What's the story um, with 50, I mean, because you just said hundreds of poets. What's the story with the, we commonly hear 52, right? That's yeah. the number that's thrown around. So I think it's more of a symbolic number. 52 in, in India is, is a very symbolic number. So you say like the 52 letters, we talk about the 52 places of pilgrimage, the 52 this, the 52 that. It basically just means a lot. Right. Um, so recent historians, Biara Singh, for instance, an in, in Punjabi scholar, he, he, he did a... Um, a compilation uh, in his Darbari Ratan, a very interesting book that I recommend everyone to start reading, uh, where he basically traces all the different scholars that were in Anandpur one time or the other. And his list is, has more than a hundred names. Wow. Um, and within the poets and the scholars, you also have uh, the Lakaris, you can say, like the scribes, the calligraphers, basically. And they're, they're not a part of those hundred. So these are like on top of that. Right. I mean, it's very evident that the, like the guru is making a, a specific effort to recruit people yeah. with specific skills, yeah, which is counter to the narrative narrative today. today. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The narrative today seems to be um, if it's if it's not existing amongst Gursikhs or if it can't be found found within Guru Granth Sahibji, then it's not something worth having. That's that's the truth. I remember remember this, this story when I started learning from Juwad Masar Bapan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so Sadnam, when I started learning, one of my initial teachers, um, you know, a lot of singers eat a lot of pan, right? Yeah. And so yeah. I, I went there, and then one of my, one of the things I had to do every day for them 
was to go and get their pandan because they wouldn't stop teaching. They wouldn't start teaching until I got the pandan and put it in front of them. And then he put the pandan on the harmonium and stick it inside his mouth and then go, Shah. <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then say, right? This is a true story. It was funny to see. It was funny to see. Because it, it can only half speak when someone's eating pandan. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, I remember I was, if I tell that story to anyone, they'd be horrified. And they'd, they cite the example of um, that Sakya Burgobin Singh's horse when he went to the tobacco field. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they said he went to the tobacco field and then he didn't walk through the tobacco field. And uh, I got told multiple times that, and you touched a bandan, what are you doing? And I was like, well, you're missing the entire point. You're missing the entire point. If, if at the Guru's time, if there were, you, you mentioned earlier, there were people were uh, Hindus or Muslims and they weren't compelled to become Sikhs or anything like that. No, no, no. And the Guru's sending out these people to bring these Vidwans back and sending their Sikhs to live with these Vidwans and Pandits and Ustads. And when you go to someone's house and live with them, you live under their rules. And that concept just doesn't exist anymore. Exactly. It's, it's actually good you bring this up because it's, it's a very... It's a very important. Um, it's, it's very important to realize that in this court, whether it's fifty-two, maybe whether it's hundred, it was only a very small minority of them that were actually Sikhs. I think it's like ten to fifteen of them were Sikhs. The rest of them, ninety percent, were uh, Hindus and, and Muslims. So the idea was also with the Guru bringing all this vidya into Anandpur. The idea was also. For, for these uh, Vidvans and Pandits to, to basically teach the Sikhs this Vidya uh, and, and basically embed this Vidya within the Sikh world that was obviously evolving at the time. Um, and as you say, when you, when you live in people's houses, you respect their rules. So when you read these grants, these different grants, that I, I think about 145 of them have survived till today, you wouldn't necessarily recognize this as Sikh literature today. So like in the opening Mangalacharan, for instance, they praise Ganesh, they praise um, these different deities. And obviously a lot of people would probably get allergies and like remove these books from their homes. But this is like a Hindu grant. Um, but obviously there's a long tradition between these uh, Mangalacharans. Um, so this is what you do. Well, this is how you wrote poetry. This is what you did as a respectable honor um, in, in, in basically honoring your own tradition. And you can see that in some of the, the court, sorry, in some of the later writings of the Sikhs, some of them, they continue this long tradition of, of, of praising um, Ganesh, for instance, or, or the Devi in the opening lines. And other, they, they didn't, uh, they, 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 they had the Ikunkar, Satgur Prasad, Sarivahiguruji Ki Fateh, and continued on in what we would today would recognize as more Sikh opening um, Mangla Charans. So, Again, it's not fixed in any way. This is a very open world. This is a very, there's no taboos. The later British scholar also said, when it comes to Sikh education, there's no taboos. They'll just take whatever knowledge they can find. And I'm just paraphrasing it, but they'll take whatever knowledge they can find. If it has knowledge, they'll take it. If not, we'll keep looking for some, somewhere else. So, that, I mean, that's really interesting. The fact that you said there's no, no taboos. Um, whereas it feels like today, everything is rooted with taboos. You know, there's more that's all it is now. So in terms of subjects and topics that they talked about and they wrote about, um, were they one, were they any topics that they wouldn't talk or write about? And two, 
were there topics that they wrote or talked about that today are completely taboo and we'd be freaked out about? I think most of it. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> so, for instance, the Upanishads, that's like Hindu spiritual literature. Uh, 52 of them were translated. 52 of these Upanishads were translated and studied by the sea. So when I say translated, I don't necessarily mean that they translated and just put it on a shelf and then it was there. Having a translation mean, made means that you're trying to make the book accessible for a wider audience of people. And when you make it more accessible to people, it also means that you're pushing them into discussion of what is the content. And obviously then they're learning from it from that time onwards. So the Upanishads, for instance, talks about um, realization of the self, uh, talks about spiritualism, mysticism, and so forth. Um, another book was um, Janakya's Rajniti. Um, some people call him Janakya. And this is a book, um, which these, these, some of them have been published, and, but most of them haven't been published today. Um, and this is a book, like you've seen on my Instagram account, that talks about a wide variety of subjects. Um, political science, it talks about how to deal in social gatherings like with your friends and, and your family, it talks about psychology, how to live in a world that's cruel. Um, and like, if you're a soft person, how do you survive in a world of cruel people? And, and some of the content here is not really, it doesn't align with Sikhi. And that's like one of the other important notions from the Anandpur Darbar. I would say 90% of, of the content doesn't necessarily align with Sikhi and Gurdman principles. But the idea here is that we learn from it uh, because all books does have something you can learn from it. Um, what else was there? Obviously the Mahabharat. Um, that's another one. And most people would consider the Mahabharat to be a, a Hindu grant, a Hindu book. But if you look into the content, um, it, it, it deals, it's like an encyclopedic writing. It talks about governance, it talks about diplomacy. It obviously, it talks about uh, spiritualism as well, but the Bhagavad Gita, for instance. Uh, but it also talks about ethics and morals and how to live in the, in, in the world uh, of conflict and strife. Um, so you can see like, where I'm going with this, right? There's a lot of different subjects that, that were relevant for the Sikhs to, to study and learn about. You have other topics like eroticism, uh, the Pakyan Charitra, for instance, um, was, was, uh, which is basically from the Dasam Granth Sahib, uh, a collection, a wonderful collection of about 400 stories that were taken from the Middle East, from South India, from Northern India, and then penned down into book format. Um, so these are like oral, oral traditions, oral stories that are suddenly taking literary form in, in, in a single unified scripture. Um, you have a lot of books that are emerging as well um, on, on the life of, of the guru, especially the 10th guru. So this is where you start to see the development of what we call the Gurbilas uh, tradition, where the Sikhs are writing um, praises about the gurus, but, the, uh, but also like the history of the gurus. Um, and this is also very important because a lot of the information that we have today on the lives of the gurus wouldn't be here if it wasn't for these in this particular aspect, mostly Sikh authors who were writing about the Sikh uh, gurus. Um, you have the Atiyatam Barakash, for instance, which is a Vedant book, um, very Vedantic. It basically takes a lot of difficult concepts like Bairag, uh, Nirvana, Mukti, Moksha, 
uh, samsara, all these different concepts that most Sikhs believe in today. And then it discusses them and explains them and how do they apply uh, for a seeker, for a genuine seeker in his or her life. Um, and like I said, there was no topic that was barred. There was no topic that, at least from the way I read it, there was no topic that they didn't dive into. Um, so a lot of the taboos that we have today, they didn't really exist in Anandpur at the time. Another example, just a quick one to round up, is the Prem Sumarag, um, which is a book that firstly outlines a rahat for the Sikhs in terms of how to live in the world. Um, but the last chapters is actually about political science. It's how, when the Sikhs eventually, when the Khals eventually will rise to rulership, how should they set up a government? How do they divide the territories into different provinces? The governor of these provinces, what responsibilities does he have towards his subjects? Uh, what is the, it also discusses like what is the, the basically the, the job of governor in terms of securing jobs for everyone, housing for everyone, uh, eliminating poverty and so forth. Uh, how do you set up a judicial system of people across the law? Um, what are the limitations of the Maharaja? He doesn't have impunity. He's under the law as well. Uh, so if he breaks the law, who is actually, he, who is he responsible to and so forth and so forth. So you can see that we're talking about spiritualism, history, mysticism, uh, eroticism, uh, living in this world in terms of its good and bad, um, psychology. Uh, I could just keep going on and on. Um, I've done some research recently that also suggests that some of the, the more softer sciences were also um, studied, like in terms of geography, architecture, uh, and so forth. Kind of reminds me of, uh, you know, again, coming back to music, because <laughs> we like to talk about music. Yeah, please do. Yeah, let's the, bring out all these parallels. The, I mean, all, a lot of people listen to, to rag music today and go, so, uh, we don't understand it, right? Uh, and a lot of the time, you, I, I look at that and I don't blame them for it. But I mean, traditionally, rag was something that was sung in darbars. Uh, it was probably uh, accessed by people who were noble or in high positions were probably listening to it. People in the street probably didn't have access to or weren't listening to, to rag music. And I, I, as I'm going along, it, it feels like the, the, guru, like the gurus uh, in an attempt to, to bring, give, bring this knowledge, like this knowledge, uh, to the average person. And if, if I'm not wrong, it sounds like you're saying that these books are written uh, in Punjabi and as an attempt for all six to be able to access them. And then also keeping in mind that these books wouldn't have, uh, people, other, I mean, people from lower castes who weren't Brahmins wouldn't have had access to this before. Exactly, yeah. And this is something that was um, very important for the gurus that, that learning and education wasn't restricted to one class of people. So back then it would mostly be the upper class and upper caste um, communities. So the first thing by translating into a vernacular language is basically to make it understandable to, to everyone. But also like in, these, in terms of these rap battles and these, um, not rap battles, these poetry battles that were taking place. <laughs> you can stick to rap battles um, if you want. Yeah. That's what we're calling. <laughs> yeah. These poetry battles that were taking place, you can also see that some of them were high-cost high uh, pundits that were battling against, uh, you can call it low-costs um, at the time. And, and the low-cost eventually came out as the winners here. Um, so the idea is, as you say, it's, it's about making these these very refined traditions in terms of Rag Vidya and even like Shastar Vidya, but also Shastar Vidya, which is like the writings of literature. 
sorry, the science of literature, making this accessible to, to the ordinary people. Um, there's no doubt about that. This is the main object of Guru Gobind Singh Ji's rule. Um, I've re I'm, I'm about to publish a, a, a paper on the Anandpur Darbar. It's being peer-reviewed at the moment, but I think it should be out in a few months. Um, and I also trace like the, the, the sequence of books that are translated um, and commissioned. Let's just call it commissioning. This is what the Guru is doing. He's, he's pointing towards books that need to be translated. And if you look at the, the sequence of that, you can see that early on, uh, a lot of them are these books that teach. It's basically literature manuals. How do you write good poetry? How do you write good literature? So you can see like from the early on, the purpose is for more people to do this. It's not to bring in vidvans and then restrict knowledge to them. The idea is you bring them in and then they teach this to others. And I don't think there's any stronger symbol than to have these manuals because obviously from a manual, this is where you teach uh, things um, from. So another point of mine is that a lot of the early writings that, that, are, tr that are coming into Anandpur and being translated and studied, it's what we today would call action-oriented literature. It's not meant for, for the person to read it, sit there and have some inner internal realization um, of, of the majesty of the, of the universe and the divine and so forth. It's, it's action-oriented literature. It's, it's making you do stuff, making you teach um, diplomacy, making you teach political science, and making you teach um, how to write good books to, to other people. Um, and obviously this is also where the, the concept of Sangat comes in, uh, because this was obviously embedded within the Sikh world at the time. If you have anything, share it with others. Yeah. And um, out, of, out of curiosity, before we go on to that, who peer reviews your paper? Like, I'm, I'm curious to know who does it. Uh, I'll tell you that afterwards, yeah. But it's some of the major scholars on the field. Right. Cool. So, you know, I was just about to ask, Earlier when you mentioned about the Prem Sumar Granth and it yeah. goes into um, how a Raj should be governed. Yes. How, you know, different areas should be divided and then how you set up the political structure and stuff like that. Would you delve into that a little bit? How, how is it a political structure in a, in a Sikh Raj developed according to this Granth? Yes. So this is actually what my, the chapter I'm publishing is about. Um, so I'll, I'll share a few things with you. Um, so the structure is based on, on the Mughal system. So the way the Mughal system was divided into provinces, the Sikhs have basically uh, been inspired by that. Uh, why? It's not being like, it's not like they're copying, uh, like what do you call it, plagiarizing. It's basically because it worked. It's a good form of governance that the Mughals were using. Um, so they basically... They, they've copied that into the Prem Sumarag and said, a Khalsa Raj should be governed into provinces. You have the central power at the capital and then power is, um, power is decentralized into provinces. Um, but where the Sikh aspect comes in is because it keeps talking about the notion of justice. That what, however way you tax the people, you punish the people, you... Uh, engage with the people, the concept of justice has always has to be present. Everything you do has to center around justice. And this form of justice comes from uh, Guru Arjan Dev Ji's um, Halemi Raj, uh, the notion of that. But even further back into the Asadivar, where Guru Nanak Maharaj is talking about justice being the prime 
responsibility of, of a king, of a raja. So what they're doing is that they're appropriating existing knowledge, appropriating existing systems, and then just adding a Sikh ethos onto it. So for instance, it says like, if, uh, just for an example, it says if, if, there's a, if it hasn't rained for many, many months, and uh, you can see that the, the, um, in the villages that there's, there is, what do you call that, a drought? Is that what you call it? Yeah, there's a drought, yeah. Um, then the Raja and the local authorities are not allowed to tax the people because that will be oppression. Because if they're already struggling because it hasn't rained for months, you can't come and take what, half of whatever they have there. Um, and it also talks in, in many other ways. It keeps saying like, it's basically just a long praise of justice. It even says for the Maharaja, the only thing he will be judged by in the afterlife is not his personal piety. It's not how he lived his life in terms of Simran, Bhagati, uh, and so forth. The only thing that the ruler or the king will be judged is did anyone experience oppression in, in your kingdom? And if he does that, he will be answerable to that. Um, and, I think that, and I think that's a very interesting notion to have that because it basically also means that, that Maharaja is a Maharaja that's in power here. Um, it's not like a democratically elected uh, ruler. It is a Maharaja because that was the system they knew at the time. But it's, it's a benevolent Maharaja. It's a Maharaja that's under the responsibility of the law. He's under the judges of society. He can be, um, he, like I said, he, he doesn't have any impunity. But for him, um, his main obligation is basically just to center around being a just king. He doesn't have to worry about doing his, I mean, it might sound controversial, but he doesn't have to worry about being a good, faithful, religious ruler because you know what happens. They end up being oppressors. Uh, he's just, just and focused on, on being a, a just ruler where everyone finds contentment, regardless of what religion they have, what uh, caste background they have, what tribe, if you're in, like, in tribal areas uh, you're in. And also, it's very interesting in, in terms of modern uh, view. All people have to be represented at his court. Um, so it talks about people from different language groups. So we're talking about multicultural uh, kingdom or empire here. He says all people from different language groups of society has to be in his court. Uh, along with the painters and, and the artists and so forth. Right. And does it mention anything about how the Maharaja gets chosen? So um, you're asking like a lot of questions that I deal with and cover in my, in, my, um, in my chapter. I'll send it to you. I think you'll find it very interesting. Um, so this is like the interesting part. Um, and this is how you bridge the Prem Sumada with all the other writings that the poets are translating. Because... Despite its Prem Sumarak's very vast uh, topics that, that I mentioned before, it covers a lot of different topics. It doesn't mention something as vital as a foreign policy. What's the foreign policy of the Kalsaraj? It doesn't mention how you find the Maharaja. But interestingly, these are some of the major, these two here, these are some of the major topics in other writings that were produced in the Anandpur Darbar. So the Hittubadesha, um, and the Panj Tantra, I think it's the whole chapter two, the whole second book of the Panj Tantra and the, and the Hitubdesha, they deal with foreign politics. How do you deal with allies? How do you deal with enemies and so forth? So I think in the Prem Sumari, they didn't cover it because you can already find that in some of the other uh, literature that was translated by, by the Kavis. 
it's the same with uh, how to find the um, how to find and appoint the the Maharaja or the ruler. Uh, in the, in the Persian Hikayat um, story two and three, they they deal with how you select a king for for a kingdom, uh, how you select a ruler, and and it, it's a, basically a discussion on is it are we talking about military prowess? Is that like the main responsibility, or are we talking about uh, wisdom and, and the foresight, being able to see into the future, what's going to happen 20 years from now? How do I invest in the best way? And obviously the story ends up with saying um, the main criteria and the main characteristic of a ruler is that he has foresight. He can see into the future and basically do what's best, not for the short term, but but for the long run of his kingdom. Right. And, and I mean, that's so insightful, especially the part about justice, how justice kind of permeates all the, the entire discussion from, from start to end, how everything is really about justice. And that's the Sikhi element um, kind of coming into it. But, I mean, we're starting to hear a lot about democracy now in discussions and people saying things like um, Sikhs were the original people to bring the concepts of democracy and this that, and the other. Um, is there any truth to that? Is there any concept of democracy and people choosing a leader or anything like that um, amongst the Sikhs? Um, to be honest, no. Um, so in the early literature uh, and that were translated and redeveloped and refined by the Sikhs later on, um, the concept is one of, I think you call it meritocracy. So you don't appoint a person because he's the most popular, like you do in democracy. You don't, you don't appoint a person because he's the most popular. You appoint a person because he's the most capable. And in terms of Raghavidya, I guess it would be the one who sings the best and knows the most and so forth. Um, and in terms of here, it's the one who has the different characteristics of, of what a ruler should possess. He is the one who, who takes power um, and becomes the ruler. So <clears throat> this idea that Sikh political science is very democratic and so forth. Um, I think there's a lot of scope for that. You could argue that there's a lot of things that are very democratic in nature. But I don't like using those words because this is not a word that's indigenous to us. It's not a part of our vocabulary. I mean, what's, what's the Punjabi word for democracy? That probably doesn't even exist. And if it does, it's like a made-up word. Yeah. So I think we should like start using... <laughs> democracy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, but yeah. there are elements because, like I said, the Maharaja does not have impunity. So, in existing forms of government in the Ottoman Empire at the time, in the Safavid Empire, in the, uh, in the Mughal Empire, and so forth, the ruling elite and and the and the, uh, and the emperor, um, they were outside the realm of law. So when the Prem Sumarag says that everyone is under the law, whether he's the minister, he's the prime minister, or even the Maharaja says, then you see there's like an element of democracy, right? Because you're bringing, you're basically taking power away from the powerful. So you could argue that there's democratic um, impulses in early Sikh political traditions, but it's not democratic. It's a very unique form of system. Uh, it's a very unique system of governance. Um, that I don't think you can find in other writings at the time. But this is something I'm going to look more into in terms of how did the Mughal system develop, what were the uh, criticism of it, and how did the Ottoman system develop, uh, Ottoman Empire system develop, what were the criticism of it. 
to see like parallels because I, I believe that Gurgubh Singh was very um, orientated about what was happening in other empires at the time. Um, and I even suggest that the Akbar Nama was present in Anandpur at the time. Do you, do you have any examples of where uh, this type of leadership was used later on by six? Uh, or do you see anyone quoting uh, or referencing all the books uh, put together here uh, as a form of their leadership? Um, yeah, this is another aspect that needs to be covered more. So I hope like either you or some of the listeners would want to delve more into this area. Um, I, think, I think a lot of aspects of it were used by Sikhs and the later Sikhs, the missiles, uh, the missile Maharajas and later on the Sikh empire, um, Maharaja Ranjit Singh and so forth. I think some, some aspects of it were taken. For instance, you can see in the Persian writings, from Maharaja Radhisim's quote, that there was a lot of focus on justice. It was like his mantra, uh, he kept repeating, like justice has to be the, uh, the ruling principle of, of this empire, but more research has to be done on this. But in terms of referencing, um, there were British um, travelers in India at the time traveling in the Sikh territories. So just like um, to paint it out for you, uh, there was not just the Sikh empire of Maharaja Ranjit Singh. Northern India was dotted with different Sikh kingdoms at the time. Um, and, and a lot of Britishers they, uh, and other Europeans, they were traveling in these different kingdoms uh, that had Sikhs as their rulers. And some of them were obviously translating Sikh uh, literature uh, of the time. And interestingly, one of them translated the Parim Sumarak in 1805, I think. That's quite early on in, in, the, in, the, in the ruling life of Maharaja Ranjit Singh. It's not even at the top of his power. Um, and I, I believe that obviously he would, these Britishers, they were clever. They weren't just translating any random books they could come across. They were looking for the most influential books or the most uh, respected books amongst the Sikhs. Right? Because obviously they wanted to get an insight into their way of thinking. So just the fact that they were translating the Prem Sumatic into English is because they wanted to know more about the ruling system of the Sikhs in order to later obviously subvert it and, and replace it with the, with the British system. The whole idea of knowing, knowing your enemy, right? Hmm. That's interesting. Uh, just going back to something you were saying earlier, Satnam, about Guru Gobind Singh Ji at the start of his guruship versus the end and the Anandpur Dabar, how that changes. And you mentioned that the type of literature that was being written or translated kind of shifted as the years went on. Can you shed some light on that? How did it shift? Yes. Um, so in the early, in this timeline, this sequence that I've made in this chapter, you can see the early literature, like I said, is very action oriented. How do you, the uh, Panjstandra and the Hitubdesha there as well, like how do you govern? How do you teach political uh, students to, to kids basically and how to write the literature then the guru uh, is training his Sikhs uh, maybe for about 10 years time and then later on they start delving into some of the more you can say sophisticated literature of, of the Sanskrit tradition here you have the, uh, the Upanishads the Mahabharat and so forth uh, but also I believe the, uh, the Persian um, civilization so the Shahnameh the, um, is translated here you can read about that in the in in the Lewis Phoenix, excellent book, um, where he looks into the Persian uh, elements of the court. Um, 
and also like I suggested the Akbar Nama. And these books are really sophisticated. Like it's very technical vocabulary that you need to understand in order to translate these writings. And then later on in the late 1690s, so this is very close to the time where the Khalsa is created, you start to see a new form of literature that's being produced. And this is like the commentary books. So first they start to translate and study. Then they begin to comment on these writings. Here you have the Gobind Gita, which I've translated from in some of my posts, uh, because it's not just a translation, it's also a commentary on the verses. That uh, you have the Hitubadesha Shatak, uh, again, a commentary of the Hitubadesha. Um, and then it continues onwards from there to actually challenging these books that you've seen. So you can see, like, in order to, to comment on something, you need a, a wide understanding of what you're actually commenting about. And in order to challenge something, you need a basic overall holistic understanding of what it is that I'm, I'm challenging. And towards the end, you can see like, for instance, the Brahim Sumatic, that is a challenge of existing forms of governance from the, from the, uh, from the Sanskrit world and obviously from the, from the Persianite world as well. Because the, the Sikhs are basically saying, we have a better system of governance than you guys have. So you can see it starts very simple from translation, studying to comments, commentary and so forth into actually challenging the concepts. And this is where the Sikhs after about 20, 25 years becomes an independent tradition uh, by the constant patronage and, and, and support of the Guru. They become an independent literary tradition, a literary community with, with references, with literature uh, of their own. And does this, does this tradition disappear uh, as soon as Guru Gobind Singh is not around? anymore it is does it carry on for a while well how what's the what's the span of it because it doesn't sound like it doesn't sound like my local gurdwara like. <laughs> <laughs> well that's your fault isn't it <laughs> yeah true. um so unfortunately like i said it lasted about 25 years um the mughals in 1704 they attack anandapur uh, which brings about a huge collapse of all most of the institutions that most of the central institutions that the Guru created and nurtured for so many years. So the Darbar is basically destroyed. A lot of the books are burned as well and destroyed and probably thrown into the rivers and so forth. But a lot of them, as you can see, have survived till today. Um, and that's because a lot of Sangats used to come to, to the Guru in these 25 years uh, to learn from the poets. And some of them were given books, which they brought back to whatever city they came from. And then they have survived in these local villages, luckily for us, because then we can study them today. So a huge blow was struck at Anandpur. A lot of the Kavis were killed. Some of them basically replaced their pen with a sword and started to defend Anandpur uh, and were killed and became Shaheed there as well. Um, Biara Singh mentions a lot of the Shaheed, uh, the Shaheed poets uh, in his book. Um, and some of them, they fled... Uh, and went into other cities like Lahore, Multan, and, and Delhi, which were also centers of learning. Uh, sorry, wrong book. Um, and started to translate and write new books. So, for instance, the city Gursurbapai, Kavisenapati, he's also the one who translated uh, the Chenkaya Rajniti, which I put posts up on, on Instagram. This book was written after the destruction of Anandpur. So, he went to Lahore, started working for a local governor there or something else. But he was still writing books that were relevant to the Sikh world. Um, and this is a, a biography of Gurgobasi's life. Um, you have people like Bainandalal, I've also 
he wrote in Persian primarily. Um, he also seems to have continued writing uh, and teaching uh, Arabic and Persian. So he, he went to Multan, uh, which was in Sindh at the time. So this was outside Punjab. Uh, he opened up a school there um, and taught Arabic and Persian free to students. And when the Sikh missiles took power, they actually patroned the school and gave money to it for its continued survival. And the Maharaja and Singh did that as well. When the British came, they cut out all funding from the school and it eventually collapsed, unfortunately. Um, and you can say the, there were some good and some bad things about this destruction uh, of the Anandpur um, court. The bad thing was obviously that this whole structure that the Guru had nurtured and developed, it, it basically just uh, collapsed. The good thing is that power and vidya and knowledge is decentralized. So all these poets, they go into other cities of India, into other uh, Sikh cities, and then they get to bless people with their knowledge in these areas. Some of them go to like Hardwar and Benares. Other one goes into to holy Sikhs, uh, to Amritsar and other um, holy Sikh centers of, of power and spiritual significance. Um, so in that sense, you could say that there, there are also some blessings because now it takes on a new form that's more decentralized and they come, the, the knowledge is basically transmitted to other people that didn't necessarily live in Anandpur and couldn't basically go to Anandpur for, for longer periods of time because they have families back home to support, if that makes sense. I've also heard that there was a, like a, a, during the attack, there was a compilation, a 350 kg book or something on those lines. Is there any truth to that? So that's the uh, Vidya Saga Grant. So in Anandpur, tradition goes that three scriptures are compiled there. So one is the Sridasam Granth Sahib. This is the writings of the Guru, of Guru Gobind Singh Ji. Another one is the Sarablu Granth Sahib, uh, which is also writings of the Guru. And these two books are compiled in Anandpur. And the third one is the combined writings of, of, of the Gavis, of the hundreds of Gavis. And in this massive Granth of 350 kilos, you have all this literature that I, um, that I uplisted uh, before. Um, and it is said that this book was lost in the river during the evacuation of Anandpur. And it, it basically implies that the book was lost. Um, I have this theory that I'm working on to, to basically uncover whether the book survived some other how, maybe copies were made of it. Because we know that there were about 50, 60, 36, I think is the number. And scribes, the Qadis present in Anandpur. And their only job was to be calligraphers, to just copy all the books that the poets were, in, were, were writing. And I'm pretty sure that the Guru, with the foresight and, and his majesty, uh, would have had more copies made of the, um, of the Vidya Sagar. And, and maybe these have gone into other parts of, um, of Punjab and basically survived in there. You have like some later um, writers. Um, both British and Punjabi that are talking about these massive chunks of manuscripts, like huge manuscripts um, with the Guru's corrections in it. And they're saying this is like from the poets and the Guru has made suggestions in it. And, and what else is this from apart from the Vidya Sagargan or at least chapters of the Vidya Sagargan and all the way up to the 18th, so the British colonial period, you have colonial administrators talking about these books. I think it's uh, Dr. Leitner who talks about that in his book on Punjabi uh, Sikh education. You can find it yourself if you want to look it up. And calligraphers. I mean, that's another interesting artistic. I mean, that form, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
uh, are you you were saying that there was something up to thirty in the uh, in the yeah. Number. So the, yeah, so the number given is thirty six, but that's a symbolic number as well. It just means a lot. So there are probably more than thirty six. Right, and we just talked about like the peak of the Anpurdurvan, right? And then mm -hmm. this instance happens where now we've lost a lot of the the text and X, Y, and Z because of the attack. Now, after that, what's the trajectory that leads us to here like now? And then how do so, we go from here up? That's a big question. You want me to answer that? It is. That's <laughs> why we have as much time as a... And, and the other thing is, Adnam, you have to solve it. As an elevator pitch. Yeah, as an yeah, yeah. elevator pitch. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll do that on Instagram Seconds. for sure. Go. So... All right, so all these Gavis, right, they're basically catapulted into the wider Mughal uh, Indian world. Um, and the interesting thing is that for later writers of the Missal period and, and the Maharaja period, uh, the Darbar of Gurgubh, even the colonial period, the Darbar of Gurgubh becomes this ideal to strive for. So even though it's destroyed, it has been imprinted in the minds of later Sikh intellectuals uh, that this existed. So now there's like an ambition, something to strive for, something to emulate yourself on. So some of the later uh, court poets of the, of the Patiala Raj, for instance, who were translating the same corpus of writings as the Guru's Kavis were, you can see in their introductory to Mahabharata, for instance, that they're talking about the Guru's court and then they're talking about their own court. So you can see like they're making these parallel links. Um, so they weren't forgotten, even though the Rabat was destroyed, they weren't forgotten. Even at the time of the Singh Sabha uh, period in reforms, you can see some of the major Sikh, or some of the major Singh Sabha uh, scholars, uh, I think it's by Gansing Nabba, in their introductions to, to books, they're praising the old Gavis of Gurgubh and Maharaj, taking them and their books as inspiration to their own uh, literary uh, scholarly work. So it wasn't completely forgotten about or destroyed until like Piyarasing came 50 years ago and started to, to dive into it as well. Um, but it has been transmitted to us mostly in symbolic terms, like 52 poets or uh, six, 36 uh, calligraphers and, or the Darbar of Anandpur. So we kind of know that something existed, but not that many people have dived into what it was actually about. Um, so for instance, I came into Sikhi when I was about 18, 19 years old. And um, I, went, I went on a road trip to India. Uh, I think I was about 19 years at the time. Um, I went on a road trip in India. I went, we went to like Hardwar, uh, Rishikesh, um, Rajasthan, uh, down south and so forth. And I remember when I was in, you remember this was a different time. We didn't have social media. You're probably from that generation as well. We had like MSN Messenger and Yahoo Messenger. That was about it. You remember those? <laughs> so, the knowledge that we have today, the websites that we have today, like Gurumat Vichar, that didn't exist back then. All these Instagram accounts and so forth, it didn't exist at the time. But it's really funny that I bought this book when I was in Hardwar. Um, this is Chinakya, right? Uh, they don't paint I him bought it. Well. Sorry? They don't paint him very well. No, they don't. <laughs> so what's the he, angry he, looks like, he looks like a Hindu gangster or something. Yeah, know, yeah. Or he looks like an, uh, an auntie from like a show. <laughs> Like the sus, you know, like, yeah, like, yeah. Now, now look, the sus look from a show, from a bad Desi show. 
Yeah. <laughs> Why is my tea cold? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And he, al- he always looks very angry as well. That's really weird, but it's really I, interesting I when I look. Like I think look. I think yeah. I think that's what they're trying to do. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because call him the Machiavelli of the East, like this conniving, cunning kind of person. But I bought this book because I knew that it was associated with the Code of Good Women thing. Um, so, like, I don't know where I got this information from, but someone had told me, maybe it was Gata or something, that this book was translated. Fast forward many, many years later, I, uh, I finally find the, uh, the Prajpasha, the translation from the Guru's Code. Uh, and then I start looking into it, and this is the one I do my translations from um, on, on Instagram. So, you can see that it has been transmitted to the wider average anti-Ankansiki world, but mostly in symbolic terms. And I think it's up to us as a new generation to, to bring knowledge about who were the poets, where were they working before, what did they bring into the Anandpur Darbar, what were they translating, what were the Sikhs studying at the time uh, in Sikh centers of power. Because what was taking place in Anandpur wouldn't be, shouldn't be different from what should take place at the local Gurdwara. These same kind of topics should be discussed um, and encouraged and, and the Gurdwara should be patrons of, 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 of local artists, people with skills, uh, musicians and ragis and, and whatever you have. Um, but I think also like there's this idea that the Guru as a patron, this is like something we need to delve on a little bit because we need to change our language in terms of like when you're asking what can we do, the first thing is always to change your language the way we speak about things, right? I did a speak, I did a lecture in London a couple of years ago and one of the students comes up to me afterwards um, and he said, um, Baji, you mentioned the library of Anandpur, sorry, the library of Guru Gobind Singh in one, in, uh, in one of your slides. Uh, I've never heard that word before. Um, and then I kind of realized that it's true. We don't really use that kind of, of language. So, I did my studies in cross-cultural studies. For us, it was very normal to talk about the, the library of, of Caliph uh, Harun al-Rashid or the library of Akbar, uh, the Mughal emperor and so forth. But we don't really talk about the library of Guru Gobind Singh. So this was two years ago and I kind of realized I need to use that word a bit more, like in the papers I write and in the PowerPoint presentation. Because obviously with all these scholars there, there was a library that was being assembled. Um, and if there was a library, it means there must have been an organization to it, right? So th- in my chapter that uh, I will publish in a few months, I talk about the Sanskrit department of the library. I talk about the Brajpasha and the Hindi department. I talk about the, uh, the Punjabi department. And I talk about the, uh, the Sikh the manuscript department. All these different departments of the library, because there must have been like a, li- a hired staff as well, like librarians as we would call them today. So we need to change this lingo about how we talk because if we know that there was a library at Landbur, it will hopefully in the long run boost this idea that we also need to have libraries at the local Gurdwaras. Not just 20 books, but actually hundreds or thousands um, of, of books. And I think you should also start using uh, that uh, word uh, a bit more um, because it's a very easy way of creating images in people's minds mm. because everyone can relate to, to a library. Whereas when you talk about a court, it's very difficult or a darbar, it's very difficult for people to actually understand what a court or a darbar is, because we don't really have that kind of things today um, in the same way. Another thing is the idea of, um, it's like this dual focus that 
Gyani Gyan Singh and I think Govind Singh also talks about that the Guru created two aspects in his court. He talks about they've paraphrased it in different ways. Like Gyani Gyan Singh talks about the Shastratadis and the Shastratadis, the people that had a sword in their hand and the people that had a pen in their hand, right? And basically, you can say that there's two different concepts at play here. He's creating a group of people that are willing to understand the world through intellectual activity. That's what we later on call the Nirmalis and the Gavis and the intellectual people. These are people that are willing to understand the world. But apart from that, you also have the people that are ready to change the world. You see the difference? Understanding the world and changing the world. These are like the Nihangs and the people that became part of the uh, military forces, the people that came into power as administrators um, and rulers and governors and so forth. Uh, the people that did Seva, the Seva Pantis, went into Muslim territories uh, and other territories, built wells, schools, hospitals, and so forth. These guys weren't just sitting down writing books, they were changing the world. So if we kind of get that into our mindset that there are two types of Sikhs, there are those that are trying to t- understand the world, and there are those that are trying to understand the world. Right? They're, they're trying to understand the world, those trying to change the world. I think that'll give a boost to how we in- internally organize the Gurdwaras and, and, and all these different Sikh schools that are popping up all over the Western world. Yeah. I mean, talking about new generation stuff as well. And this idea just came to me while we were talking, because we're always talking about specific uh, art styles and forms and promoting them. One thing that we're probably missing, uh, and it was really eye-opening for us last time we were in India, uh, is probably something that would be very eye-opening for a lot of people is traveling to the places that the gurus travel to. Uh, by example, when we travel to Banaras, uh, the the idea of uh, what Guru Nanak Dev Ji was talking about and our understanding of Sikhism was so enhanced from that experience. Uh, All right, yeah. In, in what I, way? <laughs> Banaras, <laughs> Banaras ke Let's leave it. <laughs> well, look, 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 look. We what happened is is this is this is us, right? We for us. Uh, I mean, we've been, I've been to heaps of mandas before, uh, yeah. we've been to masjid, we've been to everything, right? Banaras was a place of spiritual significance. Uh, of, it's a place of a spiritual significance for Hindu people, but it was also for us because we were respecting what was theirs. And that's part of our, out of our culture to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we went, we, we did go, we went to Banaras uh, and uh, we were going to the Ganga. And the very first thing, uh, I mean, all right, there are many things before that. But the thing, the first thing I think about when I think about Banaras is uh, we, uh, calling Ganga Mata. Uh, and the first thing we, we see when we get there is the guy who tries to get us onto the boat. The very first thing he does, the first thing, he's like, come, let's get on the, let's go on the boat. The first thing he does is he spits his ban in the Ganga. And, you know, we just, like the idea of what it meant, uh, the business aspect of it, the superficial nature of religion uh, in some sense became mm. very clear. And at that point, you know, we looked at each other. My brother was there too. We kind of just all looked at each other and said, I think we get it. Everything is, religion yeah. is like a commodity there. That's what it felt like. Mm-hmm. The yeah. entire time from the get-go, from when we set foot until we left, every single experience was tainted by that. That, that everything was commodified. The, your, your mukti was commodified. Your death was commodified. Your birth. Every ritual associated with life was commodified. Oh, okay. The Ganga was commodified. Every, 
everything. And it kind of sets all of that. Uh, it gives all that context that we've been reading and being exposed to in terms of the Guru's history and what they've been talking about. It gives all that context, which we didn't have sitting in Sydney. Or even reading about it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we've read about it. We kind of had an idea, but going there just cemented it. Uh, you know, it's probably one thing that people should do is go to those places and see what's going on. Yeah. 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 So in terms of, well, actually, remember we, we also went and saw um, the Nirmala there. Well, yes, we should. The yeah. Oh, cool. yeah. Yeah. So yeah. we, we uh, funny story. We were just looking around. We, we found out that there was a Gurdwara there. Or like not a Gurdwara, Nirmala studying center there. And yeah. if, for people that are listening, if you're unaware, right now, the Indian government is basically building a corridor that goes from the Ganga River uh, straight into the city or something like that. Are you aware of that, Satna? No. Yeah, so they're building this corridor and in the process, they're basically going from the river straight into the city or something. And it's, I don't know, 100 meters wide. Or so, I don't know. It's oh, way huge. more, way more. Yeah, yeah. it's hundreds That's, of meters wide yeah. and you just, you'd walk on it and stuff like that. But if you go to Banaras, all the gully are like a meter and a half wide. And it's just mm. small mandirs everywhere. So you just traverse oh, going up and down so many stairs, right? Everything is built up from the Ganga. Anyways, these guys are building this walkway or something. And in the process, they're just bulldozing all the old buildings, oh. all of them. And you go there, you remember it was, it was astonishing. And they don't let you go near it because anytime you go near it, there's cops um, just sitting on a chair. Just right. If you go near it and pull a camera out, they say, leave. Get out of here. You know, I'll take a photo of it. But basically, they're bulldozing all the mandirs um, from the Ganga. Hmm. Probably like 100 and something meters wide and hundreds of meters long. Everything that comes comes in the way, bulldozed. But so the one of the Nirmale Akade were placed in there before and they got hmm. demolished. That's so, been there since the, that time. Since yes. Time. Yes. That it's was, been yeah, there for say. The first Nirmalakara was in the Banaras, I think. Yeah, so that's gone. It's been demolished now within the last year or something under the Modi government. So they're just smashing it all. And we get there and we're looking for this place and we just can't find it. We just can't find it. And we're just looking around, blah, blah. So then we start asking people and we start getting desi directions, you know? <laughs> you know, this, <laughs> or go to this mandir and then turn left and then that people they paid to Sajay Murjeo, etc. So we just find these directions and we finally get to this place and it's a new building. Like it's just like a normal home. And we couldn't tell it was a, I can read Hindi. So I could read the board. So it said Nirmal Akara or something. Nirmal, like that. Mat. Nirmal Mat. That's what it said. Nirmal Mat. I could read Nirmal Mat, but it, it didn't seem like it or anything like that. Right. So we, we spent, we, I mean, we spent about 20, 25 minutes outside just standing around yeah. kind of unsure, unsure. About, the, about whether we should yeah. go in. Cause yeah. there were, there were kids learning uh, some form of Sanskrit, some form or, of Sanskrit. There was something, uh, some, or some Hindu scripture, something that were, they were reciting yeah. it. So we were, 20 25 minutes in we decided yeah. that we're going to walk off right yeah and just as so we're we about just, to walk off yeah yeah, yeah we, there was a there was a guy probably in his 40s or 50s total like bonded like think close your eyes and look that photo that you showed us of of uh the Janakia, that Janakia, guy, yeah. That yeah, guy, yeah. that's what this guy looked like right yeah. so as pundit as pundit gets this guy's sitting there and teaching them the scripture and they're repeating it back to him and then we kind of peeking like, oh this they don't look like six yeah this isn't it we were walking right. we were expecting like nirmale right so yeah. so with a dadi and a, and a pug just in that pace 
So we, so as you're saying, we stood outside for 25 minutes. And we're like, okay, we're not seeing anyone walk in and out that we can recognize or say hi to. So we're going to bounce. As we're walking away, the guy comes back. He's like, oh, I do, I do, I do, I do. Like, no, no, that's not what happened. Yeah. No, no. First thing, first what happened is, is from the corner of my eye. Yeah. I saw that there was a big poster of a Guru Nanak Dev Ji on it. Inside? Yes. Yes. There was a big right. poster with Guru Nanak Dev Ji on it. So yes, he built yes, some yes, confidence yes. and yes. St- kind of went towards the door. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> and then it goes from there. And then it goes from there. Then yeah. they called us in. They're like, oh, to see Ajo, et cetera, et cetera. And, we went in and uh, then they were like, yeah, when then Malay and whatnot. Then this guy, this, the pundit looking guy, told us to sit right next to him. And then so we just sat there awkwardly. And then he's reciting, um, you know, he's, he was clearly teaching them scripture of some sort. And they were reciting it back X, Y, Z. So we sat there for a few minutes. And as we're sitting there, kind of just looking at each other, we have no idea what, what to do, where to go from here. <laughs> I mean, enjoying the experience. And then we're sitting there. And in the corner, there was a calendar which had a few photos of people that we didn't recognize. And then also mixed in there were the Guru's photos. About, you know, the mixed kind of tradition, mixed culture there. And we're sitting there for a few minutes and the guy walked down the stairs, right? He did, yeah. He came and, then, and then as, you know, now imagine Punjabi. Right. Close your eyes and just imagine Punjabi. A Punjabi-looking guy walks down the stairs. He's like, "Paji, ajo, 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 ajo." We're like, "What?" what? Like, said that in Punjabi. Like, what the hell's going on? So we follow him, and then he takes us to the second floor and he says, opens the door and there's Guru Granth Sahib Ji Prakash. Oh, okay. Well, we were not expecting that. So then we we pay our respect and then he's like, "Paji, ajo, te ajo." We go up, and then we get to the the roof, and then we walk out and there's a manji there with a few more seats and there's like six, seven of them just chilling. They're, they're just Nirmale. Yeah. Just Punjabis <laughs> speaking Punjabi yeah. where, and there's having Dodo something. Punjabi jokes, watching Punjabi songs. Yeah. Yeah. Punjabi songs. Yes. Yeah. We're spilling the beat. We walked up, <laughs> we walked up and they quickly turned the Punjabi songs off. But, but they were just they were all in there. Look holy. Look, look holy. <laughs> yeah. So they were in the pierce and they were sitting there and they had all come from Punjab and they were learning. Mm. We, then we had a good chat with them. We were there for them, you know, with them for, for an hour or two hours. And then we were chatting to them about it. And basically they were there to, to learn Sanskrit and Vedant is what the guy was saying. Yeah. Um, so yeah. It was, I mean, that was an interesting experience. Yeah. I, I mean, I, what I remember from that is uh, what I, what I recall is or more strongly recall is the fact that, you know, we, we're unsure. We haven't met, I haven't met many Nirmale before, but the kind of, uh, I mean, the average sick, you know, if I can use that word type of view of that is that these guys are like, you know, very mixed and neither here nor there type of mm. individuals. Uh, but when we, when we met them, they were constantly making the case that we are sick uh, mm. and that we are so like, they were like in a defensive position. They were in a defensive there. Yeah. They were like, look, we are sick. We have all sick values. We're here to learn Sanskrit, and we believe that through learning Sanskrit, we'll be able to understand Guru Granth Sahib more. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So they were making the points like you can't understand. They were pretty much saying any Gurbani without the context yeah. of um, Vedant and, and learning all these yeah. other texts and, and stuff like that. Well, it's, it's very interesting because this also goes straight back to the court of Guru Gobind Singh Ji because what, it's going to be, it's a bit technical, but like if you have the truth, right? You have such. Truth is unchangeable. It's, it, like, it, it doesn't take shape according to where we are in the world or what time we're, we're living in and so forth. It, it's just unchangeable. It's like the only thing in, in, in the world that doesn't change. That's truth, right? 
But we as human beings, we have to articulate it in human terminology, right? So, and obviously all people, like we also read about in Jopesa, they describe this ultimate truth according to their own understanding and their own intellectual levels and, and so forth. And in the Anandpur Darbar, you see a lot of different approaches and a lot of different attempts at explaining what is this truth eventually about. In Sanskrit, you see these expressions in, in the Braj Pasha, in Hindi, in the Punjabi, and in Persian. So this idea that the Sikhs at the time are appropriating different languages, different philosophies, different um, systems of thought in order to explain their own tradition. Does that make sense? That's basically what the Nirmalis are doing. They're looking into Sanskrit grants and then they're using that vocabulary to explain the, uh, the, the truth of, 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 of Sikhi and, and Gurmat. Um, but in the Anandpur Darbar, for instance, you also see attempts of this from the Islamic perspective. You see Islamic terminology that's used to explain Sikhi. Uh, and there you get a whole other... Obviously, it's the same truth that they're explaining, but it's a different ras, it's a different flavor, it's a different um, taste of Sikhi that you get there. And one of them is obviously the uh, the um, the Divan Goya, which I've been uh, putting posts up about recently, because here you see Pai Nandalal approaching the Guru and Sikhi and all these concepts of Sangat and humility and all these things from an Islamic perspective. So whereas... The Sikhs, the Hindi writers, and the, even by Gurdas calls uh, the Guru as the Jagad Guru, the Guru of the world. It's, this is all like a philosophical concept, um, going back to the Sanskrit tradition. So there is a Guru that's a Guru of the world, not just as local locality. Uh, you have the word Jagad Guru. But by Nandalal, he writes in Persian and he employs from the sophisticated terminology of Sufism and Islam. He calls the Guru. As the um, as the Murshid ul Alamin, he calls him the Rahmat ul Muznabin. It's basically the same. This guy's been working his accent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've <laughs> got it down. You've yeah. got it down. <laughs> ten out of ten, sir. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, I worked in the field for like ten years, though. <laughs> but yeah. but it's the same meaning. It means the 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 Murshid of the world, Alamin, the world Alim. So, Alim. Um. So so. Some people would read the writings of Bainandala and say, well, this is Sufi writings. Uh, the same way they will take a Nirmala Granth and say, this is a Hindu writing. Um, mm. This doesn't belong to us. But essentially, at the end of the day, this is different approaches to basically articulate the same truth. And there was, a, was there a, uh, uh, a book as well, because we're talking about Sufi, uh, Sufism, there was a book which was trying to explain Sikhism or a book written that was trying to uh, explain Sikhism from a Sufi perspective at that time written? Yeah, yeah this is one. All right, that's the one. There you go. You want, yeah, it's <laughs> right. been translated. Um, okay. I mean, what's, what's key in there? Like, what's the, what's the approach to... Uh, how, how does it explain Sikhism from that Sufi perspective? It's essentially, it's, you could call it love poetry, um, right. which describes the... the the um the what do you call that the the good sick relationship the with the murshid and his students right um so it's love poetry from the student to his teacher so he's he's explaining the love in terms of all different uh, how do you say that um well 
it's it's not really that different from like the Vars of by Gurdas in the sense that it's describing different facets of love by comparing it to different things in in the universe uh, amongst the birds amongst the uh, amongst the um, animal the the animal kingdom and the universe and and so forth so it's basically just approaching them but using Islamic terminology um, and obviously drawing on, on on an Islamic tradition of um, of symbology and cultural references and so forth. Um, but another interesting aspect is also, remember I said that they go from just translating stuff to making commentaries and challenging towards the end. So the Divani Goya, for instance, is not just an expression of Sikhi through the sophisticated terminology of Sufism. It's also a challenge to Sufism. Right. And, and this might be difficult for some people to to uh, accept, uh, because the, we always say that Sufism is a sister tradition to Sikhi, right? But there is a challenge that, that by Nandalal is challenging Rumi, you know, Rumi um, and, and Hafiz, uh, like grand master Persian poets, uh, by taking their poems, subverting them, um, and then coming up with a Sikh view on the same concept. So like the third the third poem of, of the Divani Goya is actually a javab. It's an answer. You know javab from the music tradition as well? It's a javab to the first poem of the Divani Hafiz. Right. So he's basically taking the concept that Hafiz is opening with and just giving an answer saying, basically, no, this is wrong. Here's the real answer. What's the concept? The concept is, uh, what do you say in English? Renunciation, like drawing back from the world. So the old Sufis, not the ones you have today, but the old Sufis, they would like draw back into the forest and into the desert and live in monasteries and sit and do meditation most of the day. And the Sikhs, obviously, they do the same meditation, but we're doing it in the world, Mayavich Udasi. Um, so we're doing the same bhakti, but within a household lifestyle, we go to work and so forth. So Painandala is saying, so, so, so Hafez is saying, when you find the beloved, you draw away from the world. And then Goya answers, when I find my beloved, why should I draw away from the world? Everywhere I look, I see my beloved. Right. So you can see it's a direct answer and a challenge to him. And, and basically, a thousand years of Sufi uh, tradition. And the interesting thing, this is where the, the writings of Bainandla becomes very sophisticated, is that when he says that, he's actually paraphrasing a Quranic verse. Like he says, whenever I look, I see the beloved all around me. This is a Quranic verse that says, from the Surah Al-Baqarah, where it says, wherever you look, you will see the face of Allah. Um, so, Bainandlal is not only giving the Sikh perspective and basically saying this is a more elevated view, he's also saying, this is actually what you believe in if you went back to the source of your own scriptures. Right. Very interesting. In terms of linked writings as well, uh, I've seen a lot of people's uh, a lot of people and and a scholar that you were talking about earlier. The uh, sorry, I forget his name. The, there's a French Louis, was it Louis? Louis Fennec, yeah. Yeah. So he's, I, just quick, he, he delved into this Hafiz and Bainandlal Goy. If you thought what I said was interesting, try yeah. to read his article. Yeah. And, and that's what I was going to ask you about because I read his book on uh, Zafarnama, uh, and i don't know i don't know how you perceived it but a lot of how i perceived it was was in a negative fashion where he was uh constantly referring to uh the zafarnama being taking taking direct inspiration from uh shahname 
and that it'd been done before and it's probably not as you know uh, innovative as we think it is uh, and i think even i've seen you uh, you've praised him as a scholar as well so i was interested to see what your perspective on that was um uh, yeah, I don't. Uh, I think what Louis Fenimore is a historian, so he's trying to bring out uh, parallels and draw out parallels between different writings and, and so forth. So what he does is, well, I, I didn't read it as a criticism, saying that this is not a authentic work or this is not a unique work. I think what he does is that he's trying to show the robustness of the Zafarnama, showing how much more you can draw from it, rather than this a lot of the simple uh, commentaries that you have. Um, that are mostly just translations. He's just saying, no, look, he's, the guru is drawing from a wide pool of Persian uh, references, historical figures, poetry, literature, and so forth. So this is not just a letter of 111 verses. This is actually bringing in the combined Persian civilization into the letters, using these words to basically slap Aurangzeb with, saying, you're not even being truthful to your own heritage. What kind of lousy ruler are you? To put it boldly, um, right? So... So this is like what historians, uh, this is what him, him as a historian is basically engaging with. Um, and I, I personally believe that he has brought out much more to the text of the Zafanama than any Punjabi commentary I've ever read. And I might be wrong, I haven't read them all, but I haven't seen anything as robust uh, that brings out so many um, basically elements um, of, of the Zafarnama. And I mean, I know we're looking, you're looking into literature as well and, and Anandpur Darbar. What, what role does Shahnameh uh, play? I think we, maybe we should talk about what Shahnameh is to begin yeah. with. That might be good. But maybe you can tell us about it. Is, is it a big part? First, we'll talk about what Shahnameh is, but then is it a big part in the Anandpur Darbar? So the Shahnameh is the uh, epic of, of the Persianite world um, or the Islamic world, um, you can say. So you... The same way that Mahabharata, just like to make it more simple, the same way that the Mahabharata is the epic text for the Indian subcontinent, um, this is like, uh, this book has shaped a lot of the way we understand and think and the way we speak. The same way the Shahnami has been uh, influencing the Persianite world, Afghanistan, Iran, parts of Iraq, uh, and so forth, uh, for centuries. And essentially it is a history, but it's also mythology of a lot of different rulers uh, from prehistory all the way up to the, six, the 600s of Persian rulers, how they were governing, the wars they had, family feuds, conflicts. Uh, embedded within it is a lot of different um, um, philosophical uh, content. You can draw out a lot of uh, principles on ethics and rulership and, and governance and so forth. Just the same way as you can with the, with the Mahabharata, basically. Um, so your question about how much of a role did it play in the Anandpur Darbar? Again, this is something that historians and researchers and hopefully a lot of those people listening need to look more into. So Louis Fennec in his excellent book has basically introduced the Shahnameh to us. He said, look, the Zafarnameh is building upon it. It's drawing from this pool of kings in the Shahnameh. Now it's up to us to continue on with that. So... And I think it's, it's probably, difficult to say. It's probably vital to, to know it because reading that book, uh, uh, Fennec was saying that uh, I feel like calling him by Fennec. By Fennec. It just doesn't you can seem call like him Baba. Respect. Call him Baba. Yeah, Baba. It just doesn't feel like enough respect to call him by his name. But no. 
there was there was a it felt like it was essential to to read the shahnameh and understand it because the the quote the lines he was taking was saying this is the challenge uh to aurangzeb uh that guru guru gobind singh had written uh and he was saying he was saying that this line doesn't refer to to uh, this specific blatant meaning that you're reading it as it, it refers to this part in shahnameh mm. uh and also, and something else interesting about it as well is that most of the persian miniatures that we're used to looking at as well are depictions of things that are written in shahnameh too so it plays exactly. a big part in then mughal mughalite painting and then obviously afterwards sikh painting as well exactly i think there was a there was a shahnameh commissioned by maharaja ranjit singh as well if i don't remember correctly and so it it was still a part the question you had before what happened you can see like culturally these things were still a part of the sikh ruling elites and so forth because um you can see that the the maharajas of patiala and, and even maharaja ranjit singh and also uh, onwards they were commissioning texts that were these epics mahabharat the panchtantra and obviously the the shahnama as well um now i just remember that even in in the writings of bainandalal and in the dasam granth as well in the in the uh, persian hikayat there's also stories from the shahnama there right. so you can see it's 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 not just like a one in time incident in the zafarnama it's also there in the writings that were written 10 years before that sounds like we're going to everyone's going to have to read it <laughs> yeah yeah should and, should you, huh? you go you go i was going to ask you something uh, have you come across any musical texts written in the darbar dealing with a- any uh, music performance rags anything like that because we have no uh, as far as we know when it says rag kanada rag bilab any of that kind of stuff uh, there's nothing delving into that really doesn't tell us anything about the rag much about the rag so we have no kind of secondary text that tells us what musical tradition the gurus are referring to specifically is there anything that you've come across that that would deal with anything like that no i haven't uh, i have tried to look uh, also in the last couple of days um, because i thought you might find it interesting um but i haven't been able to find any any of that and this is also very significant because one thing is what were the gurus commissioning what were they translating another is what were they omitting Uh, because that also says a lot about the, what was what was common knowledge at the time because it was common knowledge we didn't need to to translate it and i think maybe the omission of of, of ragvidya material um was because this was already common knowledge for the sikhs so they didn't really need to 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 mm-hmm. translate a lot of scripture this is just my theory though but yeah i mean it makes sense because there's there's a tradition of the nine gurus before them and their darbars having a rag is like a common feature of the darbar so exactly Um, but there 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 is a muslim poet i think his name was uh, hussein ali uh, mustafa hussein ali i think um, he wrote a poem about gurunanak and in it he's praising the rabab of gurunanak right so, well, there's a little bit of that but there is a what's his name um i have one of his books up here um ram sukrao he was a court poet of the kapurthala kingdom uh, at the time of maharaja ranjit singh who was a massive poet he wrote like 20 books or something like that he wrote a he wrote a book called uh, sham radha ki or something like that uh, gobind radha something like sangeet 
something like that. It's a huge book. I think it's like ten thousand pages or something like that on Ragvidya. Oh wow! Um, okay. So, so we do have that from the later Sikh kingdom. I, I can send. I've read a post on Instagram. I can send it to you. Then. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. You want to see? Uh, it? And I mean, today, if you look at today in the literary literary tradition of the Sikhs today, is it of any note, or is it? Is it like is it just crumbs left now, and we have to build up now? That's kind of where the music's at. That's why I'm coming from that angle. That we don't yeah. really have much. We have the crumbs left, and now it's up to us to build back up from here. Is that yeah. similar to the literary tradition, or is it still continuing somewhat with the Nirmalay or Dasis, all these people? It is continuing with the Nirmalays and the Taksalis, uh, and in, in the West, uh, amongst the Taksali youth, you do see a lot of these texts being engaged with. Um, so, so there is a tradition. It's not that wide, but there is a tradition that brings these. Uh, sometimes when I make translations, some of these students uh, they they write me and, and and like how were they taught the same passage by by their ustad? So I think it's really cool that there is an engagement with with these texts. Um, but actually, there's two ways of looking at it. You could take the orthodox or the conservative way and say Mahabharat, Upanishads, Shahnameh, the um, probably the Quran as well, the, um, the, um, all these different books that, that were translated. These have a special significance to us as Sikhs. Hence, we should continue talking about teaching these, doing something of these books and, and so forth. Um, that's like, I would call it traditional or conservative way. They were from the Guru's Dalbar, hence we should continue it. Another way is to look at the ideal of Guru Gobind Singh's court and maybe just take that aspect alone and continue with that. What do I mean about that? So, so what the guru was doing when he was patroning all these different writings was that he was taking the highest knowledge of the time, the recent knowledge of the time, bringing that knowledge into Sikh centers of power, into the Gurdwaras and so forth, and having the Sikhs discuss these texts. Right? So when they were talking about Mahabharata, that, because that was a cultural text to India. Shahnameh was a cultural text to the Mughal Empire. Uh, Upanishads, that was a spiritual text. Janakya Rajnit, that was a psychological text, uh, economical text, and, and, and architectural, blah, blah, blah. The problem is that here in the West, and, and you also are part of the Western world, these texts are not the cultural texts of these Western societies. Our societies, the way we, we have shaped our world, is not based on these writings. So if you take the ideal and the ambition, you could argue in many ways that what Sikhs should be discussing today in Sikh centers of power and Gurdwara and so forth is Adam Smith's views on uh, economical theory. It's political science in terms of Western political science. We're talking about psychology, whatever all their names are. We're talking about Freud, Sartre, um, um, Dugenheim, uh, and all these different um, Kierkegaard, um, Grundtvig, all these da Danish ones, they are the ones that we should be engaging with because this is the knowledge. If we want to understand the world, remember that understanding the world and changing the world, if you want to understand this world that we're in the West, you won't get anything from studying Janakya Zarajinti. You won't get anything from studying Mahaparat, but you will get it from studying their point of references. And in order to change the world, first the understanding of the world and then changing the world, Obviously, you need a theoretical framework for that. In order to change it, you need to understand it. And then you can go out into the world and, and, and do your seva. So that's a bit of a taking 
a radical departure away from the conservatives um, and the traditions and basically just taking the ideals and making sense of it. I would argue, but that's just me personally, I know a lot of people would disagree. I would argue that is what the intention was of the guru. It was taking the recent knowledge and making it practical in today's world um, and not just repeating old texts for the sake of holding traditions uh, high. No offense to anyone. No, and, that makes that makes sense. That totally you, makes sense. You'd need more than one in one type of institution to do something like that, which is what we see historically, don't we? Uh, whereas if now the Sikh institution is just the Gurdwara. Yeah. Uh, whereas if there were there were more in the past, uh, there were more places for people to collect resources and knowledge. Yeah. Exactly. Cool. I'm gonna go through. I keep. I sorry, the reason I'm looking down is because we got a bunch of questions from people. One million. And there's oh, cool. a there's 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 kind of a lot of them, but we'll, we'll kind of just pick through just a few of them. But I just want to say first, there's there's some people that are asking things like uh, the validity of Dasam Granth and X, Y, and Z. But it's up to you if you answer. But my and I think in the priest as well. So it's just, I, I find that a bit like useless going back and forth and talking about that kind of stuff. It just feels like it's. Yeah, I was about to say. It's a bit, yeah, uh, exactly. So people I mean, have been doing it for 20 years. Let's move on and make <laughs> sense of what's written in them rather than just debate. Yeah, yeah. So, so the questions like that, I, I, I mean, moving forward as well, people that are listening, I don't really pay, pay or give that much weight to anyway. So we, we just will avoid those ones. Um, but. This is saying, are there any texts written by like Guru Gobind Singh Ji in, in Urdu that you... Um, so Urdu didn't really exist as a language at the time, but mm. there was something called Rekta, I think. It's like mm. an old form of Urdu. Yeah. Um, so Piara Singh, he's like read Piyara Singh's books. So if you don't know Punjabi, then read Louis Fenech's books. But if you don't understand Punjabi, read Piyara Singh's books. He says that there was a Muslim court poet of the name Vali, something like that. Um, and he wrote in Rekta, in, in, I think in the Anandpur court, or maybe it was in the court of the seventh guru, I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, that's in Rekta, um, the old form of Urdu. Right. Um, there's another one here that says, you, you kind of touched on it earlier with the um, Nirmala and Lixals and stuff like that. Um, but are there any kind of institutions that are maintaining the Sikh poetry tradition, kind of writing on how Sikhs wrote, not just studied other texts, but how Sikhs were doing commentary on, on texts like that? Are there any institutions maintaining that side of things? I'm not sure, but I can imagine there must be a university in Punjab that has this focus. Um, I mean, we, we often have a tendency to talk trash about uh, Sikhi in Punjab and, uh, and the institutions there and they're all corrupt and this and that. But if, if you look at some of the major universities in Punjab, they've done really excellent work yeah. uh, in, in the fields of Punjabi poetry, heritage, history. I mean, you should, um, you should shed some light on that so people, people know what you're talking about. Well, basically, just like look at the PhDs that are coming out of India, Punjab universities, uh, in right. terms of the missile missile period in terms of Kavisan uh, Toksing's writings, uh, the Udasis and so forth in English and Punjabi. There's so much gold to, to get from the Punjab universities. Um, but it's part of the intellectual tradition, academic, sorry, academic tradition. It's not from the pious traditional uh, tradition. Right. So it depends like the person asking what they're into. Right. 
Um, and they can collect that from the digital library, can't they? There's a Punjab digital library. Wonderful. Yes, exactly. That's, that's a really good resource as well. PunjabDigitalLibrary.com. You can find a lot of books, but also a lot of manuscripts. So for instance, Tanakhya's Rajanipi, I've done research on, on the manuscripts um, on there. And it's free. And that's like the perfect uh, good thing because I live in Denmark. I can't just go to a Punjab archive anytime I want. But this website makes it possible for people all over the world to engage with our manuscript tradition, poetry tradition, and so forth. Right. I mean, this is an interesting one. Were there any, like, any types of texts or types of poetry that were favored in the Sikh Darbar? Um, so, so when I use the word literature, that's like an indigenous word to the West. They didn't talk about literature in, in India, uh, sorry, in, in Guru Gobind's code. They were talking about the nine rasas, right? The nine flavors of how to bring taste to a book. Because this is action-oriented literature. It wants to give you a taste of the book. No, they just sit there and repeat it. Um, yep. so, so Indian traditional literature is written with these different rasas. So there's like the shantras. This is literature that brings you peace. Guru Granth Sahib is primarily written in shantras because you get peace from it. Then you have the biras, which is literature that's supposed to like stir your, like make your blood boil, stir your nerves and make you anxious and like get out and, and be active on the battlefield. Um, and a lot of the writings, especially that we find collected in the Dasamgaran, has been written in this biras form. Um, so here you see like there's a change of vocabulary from the Guru Granth Sahib because this is Shantras into the, into the Dasam Granth. So like the words for the same item has changed because it wants to make, make, basically make your, your blood boil. So in, in Guru Granth Sahib, God is described as Mohan, Dial, Pritam, all these very romantic words. Um, whereas in the Dasam Granth, the divine is described as Kal, Mahakal, Kargakid, uh, like very warrior-like terms. So this is not romantic terms. This is terms that like really supposed to make you um, they straighten your back, really. Um, and it's the same when it comes to these other different rasas in terms of there's a category of humor. There's a category of, of terror. Um, there's a category of eroticism. There's a category of peace. Um, what else is there? I, I forget, but this is interesting because the same thing exists in music as well. They, they work backwards from the, from the ras. And uh, Hasras is Hasir, literally the, the nine Adbutras and Hasiras yeah, and all this. The, the literature talks about the same same kind of um, things. But I mean, going from that, you spoke about um, Bira, Shantras, and then eroticism and stuff like that. But was Hasiras written about comedy? You know, they're, they're equivalent of stand up comedy, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> is that a concept? So the, the Pakyan Charitta, the which most people think is a part of the um, erotic tradition, I think it's more like political satire because they're taking the piss on people in power. They're taking the piss on the mayors and rulers and so forth. Like some of them are hilarious, like really showing the stupidity of people, how dumb they are. Uh, Give us an example. Um, yeah, so there's this one, um, there's this one story. Uh, you just get the gist of it. I can't remember the details, right? But there's this one story of a person who, who uh, of a man, he's married to a woman. And she's like, in Danish, you call it It means she does everything the opposite way. So if you tell her to jump, she, she won't jump. If you tell her to, uh, to um, 
close the curtain, she won't do it. If you tell her not to close the curtain, she will go do it, right? And she's bringing a lot of trouble into this marriage um, because she doesn't want to work with him. She doesn't want to do anything that he suggests her to do. Um, and at one point, he kind of realizes that he has to make her do the opposite. Uh, and once he kind of finds out that, he does a lot of different examples to make her do like really weird stuff. Don't do the dishes. <laughs> yeah, don't do the dishes. Don't do the dishes. <laughs> yeah, don't do the dishes. I'm going to do it. No, I'm going to do it. <laughs> and there's like a lot of different examples that just comes into play. And this is like hilarious because the ones that are talking about, it, it talks about a king and a queen. So it's talking about people in power taking the piss on people of power thereby dismantling their power really because you weren't allowed to talk shit about sorry, like, you're, not allowed to, you're not allowed to talk bad about um, rulers it's the same in a lot of countries today they can't say anything bad about the dictators they'll come after you this is what the guru is doing in Anandpur he's taking the piss on them this was actually quite dangerous at the time but he's doing it in a funny way you can actually sit there and laugh at it how, how stupid these people are even though they have power over millions of people, they can't even control their own belly, for instance, or they can't even control blah, blah. So that's one example um, I've come across. I consider a lot of the Pakyan Charitra as political satire rather than eroticism. Right. Um, I mean, I've just gone through the list. I'll just do one more. Um, someone's asking, is there references to the poets from the Anandpur Darbar? Um, people referring to those poets from outside the Darbar or the, the kind of their excellence being referred to from outside the Darbar, people, from people that weren't part of that Darbar? This is a really good question. It's one of those that needs more study um, because if, if, if it is the case, it would be referenced in either Mughal writings or in Hindi writings. Um, so you'll need to learn how to read Hindi and obviously Persian. Uh, I haven't come across any there were a few, you could call it pan-Indian poets, very famous Indian poets that came to Anandpur and worked there for some time. One of them is uh, Kavi Vrind. Um, he's a very famous, like, he even has an article on Wikipedia uh, about him. He was in Anandpur. Obviously, he's been re referenced quite a lot because he's, he's known in all of India. Um, but apart from that, I haven't come across anything myself. Right. Cool. Is there anything you want to... I think we're ready to wrap. Yeah. Do you want to, do you want to cover anything else at now? Um, just to repeat, um, if people have found this topic interesting, I'd recommend you to, um, to go to gurumatvichar.com. That's a really good website uh, for Qatar uh, on some of these writings. Um, obviously, the writings of Louis Fennec. Uh, you can find me on Instagram, uh, and I'll send you some PDFs if you want them. Um, uh, there's an article on Hafiz and by Nandalal, and obviously there's his books. You can find them on Amazon, and and then there's Piara Singh Padam's books uh, in Punjabi. You can find them on uh, in on Indian bookshops. Uh, you can buy um, Singh Brothers, for instance. You can just order them online; they'll send them to you. He, he he's like the master in the 20th century on on this subject, um, and all the other work that everyone else is doing is basically just building upon the work of Piara Singh Padam. Right, brilliant. Sounds good. See that you next was, time. That was super insightful, Satna. Thank you so much. I'm Thank sure everyone have a good time. Uh, it's our pleasure. Thanks for doing it, man. Thank you. Thank you.